2: With your no good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. I promise you, Chris will be with us later in this episode. But for now, I have someone who's become a friend of the Church Politics Podcast which is John Richards Jr. He is a Morehouse man. He is a Howard Law social engineer. You can call him, he's many things and you can call him many things, but don't call him an activist. He is an advocate. What's up, brother? How's it going?
1: What's going on, man? It's good to be with you
2: again, sir. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, man. It is always a pleasure. Uh, The people loved our last episode and we're kind of picking up on some of the stuff we've talked about before. Uh, And so I want to kind of get into this. Before we get into this conversation, which I think is going to be a necessary conversation. Uh, I want to talk about something that happened uh, this weekend. Now, as many of you know, I am a youth football coach. I coach 8U football here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And one thing I can tell you is that, unfortunately, when it comes to parents and even coaches, it gets really intense out there. Um, Sadly, and I don't know if you heard of this before, John, you even have some parents who like vote, parents and coaches who vote on game. I mean, not vote, who bet on games with kids. Mm. And you almost get the feeling that folks are putting everything into what's going on in, in some of these games. And unfortunately, which I, sadly, I can't say that I'm surprised that this happened, although it's very unfortunate and regrettable. Uh, I think there's a brother who was in Dallas, Texas, somewhere in Texas, uh, Mike Hickman, who was killed after a youth football game. Uh, apparently, there was a dispute about the calls and the two sides got into it and someone had a gun and shot this brother uh, dead um, in front of the kids. Um, now, the shooter, I think, is the brother of some you know football player that, you know, those specifics aren't what matters. But I, I just hope everybody that, uh, can say a prayer. And just make sure that you know that we all do a better job in any way that we can to to prevent things like this from happening any any
1: thoughts on that uh John? yeah, I think you know that's one of those situations, man, especially in sports uh and you know you as you as a coach, you know especially as a former player, like the passion level of a lot of folks uh, including people who are in the stands. Um, just generally gets to a level sometimes to where it's unhealthy for kids. Um, so I think that one of the things, especially when I'm dealing with with my son and, and other youth is just trying to because I coach basketball. I play I played basketball and I had to make sure that myself um, that I served as a good example for parents who are out there because there are times where I wanted to put, you know, my best player on their best player so that we could stop them from scoring. But that wasn't actually the spirit of what we're trying to do in terms of athletics. So as a believer, I think I try to make sure I'm modeling it for the parents so that it doesn't get to that level in terms of um, being able to have something like this unfortunate happen um, in this instance.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, as a coach, it's all about the culture. And I think the culture does start with the coaches, then to the parents and then to the kids. Um, I can say my my program shout out to the the Smyrna Seahawks. We really do focus on the culture. We really do, you know, we won the association of the year because we we don't do all that yelling at the refs and and all that other stuff. And so, I would just advise and I know those folks who who listen to this show who are probably coaches who or who definitely have children who are uh playing in different sports leagues, youth leagues. Try to keep it easy. I mean, nobody's going straight to the NBA or NFL from any of this stuff really It really is about maintaining a healthy environment. So I hope we all do that. I hope we all try to act as Christianly as possible in all situations, especially when we're in environments that there are children there, because I can't imagine the trauma that some of these children uh, went through uh, this weekend. So let's all say a prayer for that. Um, you know what it is. As always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Let's start off with some Bible. In Matthew six, verses 14 through 15, Jesus is talking about prayer. He gives us the Lord's prayer or the model prayer, and then he says this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness here, that term, means a sort of release. It disallows contempt for the offense. It clears our hearts and allows us to love someone who's hurt us or our community. It allows us to want the best for someone who's done something that in worldly terms or in a cultural sense is unforgivable. You see, forgiveness, true forgiveness is rooted in God's grace. It's us reflecting what God has done for us. If we're unable to forgive, then we lack a true appreciation for the gift God has bestowed upon us. Forgiveness is an act of faith expressed in prayer. It impacts the heart and should be discernible in our words and actions. And keep in mind this isn't about some type of quid pro quo or this for that. It's not a transaction with God. It's about the posture of our hearts. And this isn't to say that forgiveness is easier or that it's something that we are always automatically able to do. But we do have to keep in mind that we didn't earn God's forgiveness and others don't have to earn our forgiveness. They don't have to apologize, repair or restore as prerequisite for our forgiveness. In other words, our obligation to forgive is not conditioned upon their words or actions. There is a contradiction in us asking for our needs to be met without having a forgiving spirit. So we're commanded to forgive and to release others from contempt, from vengeance, from many other sorts of negative reciprocity. However, we also know that God is just. So forgiveness doesn't necessarily entail a cancellation of all consequences. It doesn't, it's not a rejection of temporal justice. We see that God forgave David with the whole Bathsheba episode, but David had to face some serious consequences in regard to his sins, as we see in Second Samuel 12. So here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to figure out. And I think John, as the, the better theologian than I can help me out. How does this principle play out or apply to our public witness? I want to apply this principle to real to a real situation not for academic purposes, but to examine the real meaning of Jesus' words in relation to an issue that many of us have mourned and lamented. John, on February 23rd, 2020, Ahmad Arbery was jogging through a neighborhood in your hometown of Brunswick, Georgia, and was followed by three white men who gunned him down Uh, The man who actually shot him, my understanding is, and you can correct me, is was Travis McMichael. Now, they've been uh, prosecuted and all those things. And, you know, it's gone federal. All this stuff has happened. We'll talk about. I mean, we've already talked about the controversy in regard to the prosecution and your advocacy, the role that your advocacy played in making sure that there actually was a prosecution and that that moved forward. Here's my question for you. Being that you're a member of that community, that you've interacted with the family, that you're a black man. How do you see this forgiveness, justice tension applying to the conversation about uh, uh, how we should treat someone like Travis McMichael?
1: Yeah, I think that this is one of probably the toughest scriptural principles to apply um, across the board when situations like this arise. When you lose a child in a senseless murder and you hear the murderer's words, you hear uh, some of their social media actions, and you, you see the racist vitri- vitriol that, that's being spewed by folks who are supporting them, the question becomes, especially if you're a believer, the question becomes, how can I forgive someone like that? Like it's easy for you to forgive people that are in proximity to you, but it's much more difficult to forgive people who have wronged you in a way that can't be taken back because Ahmaud Aubrey's not coming back and his mom and his dad are grieving in very real public ways, um, in many ways like Emmett Till's mother did. So how is it that we as believers navigate that tension that Jesus requires of us? That when Peter comes up to Jesus and trying to be bold Peter and be the Peter that says, I'm going to stand out from the rest of the crew in Matthew 18 and says, hey, how often should I um, forgive a brother who sins against me? He says, as many as seven times? like I'm going to do it seven times. I'm going to do it better than anybody else. And then Jesus turns around and says, well, even that's not enough. I'm talking about 70 times seven. And it's not to multiply that to get a final number. Jesus is saying that your forgiveness and the grace that you extend, extend other people should be in alignment with the grace that I've extended to you. That was unwarranted. So how can you extend that same grace? But there's still this very real social tension that we've gone through in this country, over 400 years of oppression, man. Um, And when we see white silence on other matters, then it's hard for us, especially when these incidents where there is race involved. It's hard for the community to move towards forgiveness when the injustice is so overwhelming on the other side of the scale. So I understand that real tension, but as a believer, as a pastor, um, I, I, I teach this tough text, and I let people know that hey, forgiveness is something that is a, a Christian principle that's a necessity of all Christians. Is isn't it isn't a great area? It's black and white. And let me just say this: forgiveness does not exempt consequences. Um, Travis and Michael is still in jail for life. Um, other people who have done um, heinous acts are still going to be um, judged rightly by the system and by God, but ultimately, the forgiveness isn't dependent upon the justice that's been um, then warranted. I think that what we need to do is move towards forgiveness with the in, in light of the fact that justice has still occurred. But how do we move towards that that forgiveness? I think that's what we're going to get into. Mm-hmm.
2: No, that's real. And the reason I bring up Travis McMichael, because I'm trying to bring him an example where someone rightfully is seen as. I mean, just doing something awful. Right. And and to your point, the racial tension surrounding the whole conversation, the actions of him and people surrounding that conversation makes it very hard to do that. But I haven't heard anyone because we can all talk about how justice must be served. And and you know way better than I do what it takes to get that done and how important justice being served is. But Christians can never forget the forgiveness side of that. And I think Travis McMichael, because of what he's done and the ugliness of it, the just the horrific nature of it calls us to say, even in this case, what does that mean? How do we, how, must we or ought we as Christians react? Because if we look at someone like Travis McMichael, there's no need to downplay what he did. I think to downplay what he did is an injustice within itself, right? To, To find excuses or to make it look like it's not that bad. That's certainly not what we're not. That's certainly not what we're doing here. But even with what he did, what does God and what does Jesus example tell us? I think it tells us that Travis McMichael isn't just a political or cultural abstraction. That he's not, he can't be looked at by Christians just as a racist, even if his racism might have caused him to commit an awful crime. I I think it tells us that we have to see him as more than that. Right. That, That Travis McMichael is an image bearer. That his life, even when he's in prison for life or whatever, that that life still has value, that whether we want to do it or not, whether it's easy or not, that at some point we have to recognize. And one thing that I think about, too, like how do we find compassion? How do we find because it's not just about forgiveness There's also in understanding humanity, understanding brokenness. There's also a level of compassion that has to come with it. you can't really forgive somebody and have zero compassion for them. So. As we say, yes, he needs to serve his time, as we say, yes, he needs to be held responsible, as we say, yes, there has to be consequences. Can we also look at his story and say, I have compassion for this man? I have compassion for somebody who was with his father. Who very likely. Was given the handed down this view of black people from family members, right? Right. From people who were the closest to him, from people that he trusted, he gets this worldview that is flawed, that is evil, that is wicked, but that he didn't necessarily ask for, that he kind of got honestly. Again, it doesn't excuse anything, but from that situation, from the fact that we've, and it, it doesn't show that he doesn't justify murder, but from the fact that we all have backgrounds and experiences where we've received things that were wrong too. Is it possible to extract some level of compassion from his situation to say you you are where you deserve to be? However, I can be compassionate towards your situation and see the humanity in you and the brokenness in you, too. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to that?
1: Um, You know what, Justin, I think that we really need to think about this idea that if God's grace was good enough for the Apostle Paul, And sufficient enough for him, then his grace is sufficient enough for Travis McMichael. If you look in Acts chapter 8, the first part of that verse says that Saul approved of his murder. Um, And he's talking about the first martyr uh, in the church, Stephen. As he stands there and looks at this man get stoned and murdered, Paul dragged Christians out of their homes and took them to be murdered because of their faith. Um, and some would say because he was uh, so such an adherent to the Jewish faith that there was you know some, some race-based issue there um in some instances. So when you look at that, you see this man who's a murderer that God uses to write uh a good portion of the New Testament, and then you see the grace of God just uh invade his life on Damascus Road and he transforms his entire um, approach to ministry. And this has impacted millions of Christians across the world over the years. Man, if, if God is powerful enough to, to transform Paul's life in that way, why can't he find himself into a jail cell in Brunswick, Georgia and invade the heart Of another murderer who needs the same grace that Paul preaches and that each one of us lives. That's good. That's good. I I
2: just think it's so important. I was talking not too long ago about the story of Lee Atwater. I don't know if you heard of Lee Atwater, but he was probably one of the nastiest kind of political strategists and campaign managers you'll find, especially when it came to race, right? So he worked for George Bush and I mean, was just a very nasty. He would use race to win a, a race regardless of what happened. He he just would do anything necessary to win a race. And he was brilliant. He was a smart guy. Um, and so especially a lot of African-Americans, when you say the name Lee Atwater, it's not something that they smile at, right? Because it, it really was a manipulation and exploitation of the racial divide to win races, right? Um, and it hurt people. I mean, the Willie Horton affair and all that stuff. All that stuff happened. All that was that stuff was kind of the brainchild of Lee Atwater. And so rightfully, people had some some feelings about that. But when I read his biography and it was a while ago, so forgive me if I don't get it perfectly. But when I read his biography, there's a story about when he was really young, maybe like five or six years old. And he had a brother and him and his brother were playing around in the kitchen. Something happened and there was a pot of scalding hot water that fell on his brother. And killed him. So he literally watched his brother die in front of him. I'm sure, scream. I mean, in terrible pain. That kind of gives you an understanding why he might have had such a cold and callous viewpoint. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't necessarily justify it. But if we can't see that hurting child in a grown man who's nasty, in a grown man who has who's doing things that are are really wicked. I think we lose something. In fact, let me let me let me apply it to to the, the conversation about social justice. If you and I, as heirs of the civil rights movement, as the progeny of the civil rights movement, if you and I can't look at Travis McMichael and other people in his situation and say, yes, you need to face justice. But at the same time, I see that little boy whose father is teaching him racist stuff. I see that in you and I have compassion for you. If we can't do that. I don't I think we're squandering the legacy. I think it's not enough to do the justice. I think you also have to look at Fannie Lou Hamer and MLK and all those other folks who looked in the eyes of people who are sicking dogs on them and doing kind of all kind of other racist stuff and said, I feel sorry for you because you're sick. Not that I hate you because what have you done to me? I have a problem with what's happening because it's unjust unjust but i feel sorry also i have compassion for you because there's a sickness there there's a brokenness there that needs to be dealt with i think we lose some i mean is is there a is there a a lot do you see that loss when we're not able to make that connection in the same way that i think our 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 forefathers did
1: yeah i think so i think i mean that that's the the purpose of being able to draw from history, right? That when we see uh what they have done to be able to draw from that strength, uh draw from what the writer of Hebrews says, uh that cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, that we're we're able to kind of channel some of that to be able to deal with what we're dealing with contemporaneously. Cause, you know, scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. So this isn't uh, a new, novel issue that our our ancestors wrestled with it not only wrestled with it, but wrestled with it well in ways that were healthy. So as we are in this unhealthy climate and culture, I think we we actually do need to to work through that. Um, just I do want to mention one other thing in terms of the Black experience in America, because I know uh some of your listeners are white Christians trying to navigate this as well. Um, I think that Black Christians have done forgiveness well over the years. Uh, when I think about um, recent incidents like uh, jo- um, Brant John, who hugged Amber G- Guyton in the Dallas courthouse as um, she is in the courthouse, his brother was shot and killed by Amber, um, who was a known racist. He, he hugs her. He forgives her. Same thing in Charleston. Family members of Charleston, the Charleston shooter. Uh, was forgiven by those folks who were in Charleston. So we've, we've done forgiveness well. I think the issue is the calls for forgiveness when there was silence around the justice. So now there are people who want to speak up and say, hey, let's talk about forgiveness now, but there was silence on the other side when we're talking about justice, right? So So I just want to encourage people, be consistent about speaking out, when there is injustice, and then then you can have the forgiveness conversation. Because I think that inconsistency could lead others to believe that you could care less about their pain. So, so speak up about it, because when you make social issues, pet issues, then what happens is those pets start to walk you rather than the other way around, right? So I think that when we are engaging other believers about forgiveness, we definitely need to make sure as Ann campaign always does, this is a both and issue. You're not either on team forgiveness or team righteous indi- indignation. Like we need to have both of those feelings present with us, and I think that's important for everybody to understand. When we talk. About that's a great point. In fact,
2: putting the forgiveness before even really dealing with the justice is often a cop out. It's often a way to not deal with the justice conversation at all at all. And we do see this sometimes from Christians on the ideological right, where it's like, hey, just focus on the forgiveness. The justice doesn't really matter. Well, I we can go, we probably don't have time today, but we can go in, into the Bible over and over again, whether you want to look at Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the justice does matter. How people are treated, making sure there's not partiality in the courts does matter. So let me say this: if you use Because that's certainly not the point of what we're trying to do today. If you use the forgiveness to ignore the justice. Then you lose the whole spirit of even what we're talking about altogether. It's in a totally different spirit of what we're saying. And this doesn't just apply to Travis McMichael. Right. This applies to a lot of different people. This is just one example that I think a lot of the people that we're talking to today can identify with. But maybe you need to find. Forgiveness in your heart for a doctor that's doing abortions. Maybe you need to find forgiveness in your heart uh, for a parent who uh, has, you know, had their child go through, you know, a a same, you know, a a transgender surgery. Maybe you need to be able to find that compassion for other people who you see as completely evil. So I think that's an excellent point. And and here's what I want to suggest. And I'm going to commit to doing this. The and campaign is going to find the information for Travis McMichael. And what we're going to do is we're going to give people that information and ask you to consider writing him a letter. Uh, saying that, you know, and, and just sharing the gospel with him. Telling him about Jesus, telling him that he can be wiped clean, telling him that he can be forgiven. Um, I think that would go a long way. If not necessarily for him, it could save his it could save his his soul. Right. But also, I think it's something that we all need to do, because a lot of us, a lot of folks who listen to this. And they should have had a huge problem with that murder. Uh, we're really hurt about it. But if we're going to be if we're going to learn from the past, if we're going to improve, if we're going to be who's who God's called us to be. We've gotta be able to have both. We gotta be able to do both things and live within that tension. I'll let you take us out.
1: Yeah, I think that would probably be one of the toughest letters that I ever write. But I'll I'll certainly make a commitment to write that letter. Being that it's so close to home, being that I've worked closely with the community down there and knowing the pain that's present, um certainly am going to take time to write that letter and make sure that my heart's right, make sure that I understand that the gospel is important, but also helping him to understand the pain that he's caused, um, not in a way that's condemning him, but um, demonstrating to him that God's love can overcome all of that, and God's grace is certainly sufficient enough for him. Uh, So hopefully um, we're all able to uh, get those letters out to him, and I do pray that, that, that God will uh, work on his heart and the heart of the other two men um, who committed this heinous act, but also continuing to pray for the family and my community as we continue to deal with um, deal with this probably for the next decade, two decades, however long it takes uh, for them to continue to heal. Yeah, that
2: that's, that says volumes about about you, brother, and about your faith. And I and I would say this to folks: even if it's not Travis and McMichael for you, there's some someone out there that you need to forgive and you need to share the gospel with. Consider doing that. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, As you know, we just had uh, John Richards Jr. uh, on. And now we are joined by uh, the co-host with the most, uh, the right reverend. Uh, Christopher Butler. What's up, Chris? Oh, everything. Everything. Indeed. How are you doing? I I can't I can't complain, man. I want to get into something that once I saw this segment, I was listening to this podcast, it was it was concerning to me. Uh, But let me start off with 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 something uh, I think folks may find interesting, an interesting connection to an old book. Um, In George Orwell's book, 1984, Big Brother is the leader of a dystopian state. Uh, The state is called Oceania. uh, And there's signs all over this state saying Big Brother is watching. There's constant surveillance of the citizens of the state. Uh, They have no privacy. All their actions and intimate conversations and interactions are observed by Big Brother, observed by, by the state. Big Brother is a symbol of totalitarianism and government overreach in general. But here's a question. What happens when Big Brother isn't a government entity? What happens when Big Brother is a private entity? Some are now saying that big tech is at war with privacy. Our technology, and we've talked about this before, Chris, that our technology is far out ahead of our ethics, but not only our ethics, it's far out ahead of our privacy laws. And many are saying that uh, big tech is taking advantage of that at our expense. At least that's what James Lee is saying from the 5149 podcast. That is his argument. He says that big tech is running roughshod over privacy laws in the U.S., And Amazon might be at the forefront of that issue. Here's what I mean. For one, Amazon uh, has made some major and and possibly problematic acquisitions as of late over the last, I guess, year or few years. Listen to these acquisitions. Amazon bought Whole Foods at 13.7 billion dollars. Amazon bought MGM Studios at 8.5 billion dollars. Amazon bought bought Hill which is an online pharmacy that offers pre sorted doses of medication. Amazon bought the smart doorbell maker Ring. They're buying uh, a primary care provider called One Medical for three point nine billion dollars. They acquired Roomba, the maker of iRobot, for one point seven billion dollars. They also have Alexa. Uh, which seems which seems like it could be pretty intrusive. I know some of y'all folks have Alexa. And we know that uh, Jeff Bezos already owns the Washington Post. That's a whole lot, Chris, but unfortunately it doesn't stop there. Amazon Web Services designed a computer cloud for the CIA and facial recognition systems for law enforcement. The obvious concern here is that Amazon is big brother, that they're omnipresent, that they'll know our diets, they'll know our activity within our homes, they'll know who are co- people who are coming to our homes, they'll know about private conversations, health records, and so on. That's a lot for one in- entity to have access to. And 81% of Americans believe the risks associated with companies creating this type of data outweighs the benefit. Seventy nine percent of Americans are worried about how the data is used. And that's the tension. The tension, Chris, is between privacy and convenience. And And although the majority of Americans seem to be worried about this issue, it doesn't seem like our politicians are all that worried. At least their actions don't prove that they are. Europe has a uniform, comprehensive privacy law. Does the United States? Absolutely not. And if the closer you look at it, the more clear it is that we are simply not protected, that we simply do not have sufficient legislative protections to make sure that our our information is being used properly or in some cases not used at all. And so, Chris, just want to hear your thoughts about these acquisitions, about the tension between privacy and convenience and the lack of action from our legislative branch.
3: Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's interesting when I was uh, checking out the, um, the podcast and uh, doing a little bit of research, I was actually reminded um, a few years ago, you know, I, I, um, I consulted on the mayoral campaign, uh, for Bill Daly, who was, uh, you know, he's been involved a lot in government. He was the commerce secretary under Clinton. He was chief of staff to Obama. Uh, he was also the president of SBC Communications. Uh, and we were around the campaign office, uh, one time we were talking about privacy as it related to, um, red light cameras in Chicago, uh and like government overreach and you know, that kind of thing. And I remember he kinda laughed and said, if you think that the government uh is the one that you need to be concerned about when it comes to privacy, you're silly. Um, and, you know, he he kinda left it there, but he was certainly intimating that it's the private sector that really has uh you know, that really needs to be watched in terms of uh, protecting privacy. And so, you know, to see all of this uh, unfold, you know, you, you look at it. I remember, you know, there was one of the I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But I remember at one of the Amazon releases recently, they actually did say, uh, you know, maybe the quiet part out loud that they wanted to make Alexa omnipresent in people's lives. Um, And, you know, to me, that's scary. Like, I I think about all of those different connections. Like, I didn't realize until this podcast that Amazon actually owned Ring. Um, You know, all that stuff uh, went together does create a little bit of a situation that certainly uh, needs to be checked. And the thing that that I sort of think about the most is that uh, these new questions and new uh, issues, new things that we have to deal with in our world. Um, it just reminds me, or, or makes me realize that we need to, in order to deal with those, we have to form like new coalitions and work together in new ways. And that's going to require um, some mastery over some old issues uh, that we talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, and that gives me great pause. Like if if we can't figure out how to build coalitions uh, that are a little bit more um, Cross regional, uh, you know, transpartisan, partisan, um, you know, uh, multi ethnic and most multiracial. Those are the types of coalitions that will be needed to actually do stuff on these new questions. And if we can't figure out how to do those things, we're going to be um, all of us left holding the bag as, you
2: know, corporations like Amazon. But invade the privacy, and then go into a whole lot of other stuff. Here is my problem with what you are saying right now. You haven't answered the big question, which the big question is: Who can we blame this on? Is this Republicans? Is this conservatives' fault, or is it progressives' fault? That's all that matters in our politics, right? Who can we because everybody comes to us like, how could you ever say anything about progressives or conservatives the other side is so bad? We're so worried about who we can blame stuff on that we don't notice that there is so many things that are very important. That we're not getting done, that nobody's getting done, and that we're so far behind, especially when it comes to the technology. You said it. This needs to be checked, but the question is, how do you rein it in? Can we rein it in at, at this point? And 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 if you have such a divided government, again, is that possible at all? But I interrupted you. Keep going.
3: No, I mean, I think you you made the. I mean, you're making the, the exact point. There, this is one issue, but I think. There are a number of issues. Maybe we do a podcast on that at some point, where we literally have have gone so deep into this sort of partisan, uh, you know, culture war, whatever you want to call it, that everything that doesn't fit nicely into that framework, we just ignore it, right? But and and a lot of those things are actually the things that are pulling our. um that, that really are threatening our democracy, threatening our culture in like these interesting and, and probably really critical ways. And we literally don't even discuss them in government, don't really discuss them that much in culture because they don't fit that framework and we don't really know how to talk about. It.
2: No, that, that's real. I mean, we, we need a paradigm shift if we're going to be able to deal with this. We need leaders who are, are who are going to step away and say, man, I got to we can talk about the partisan stuff later. We've got a job to do. Because this is really serious. The, the issue here is, especially, and it's not just Amazon, right? We're we're talking about Amazon now. I just got an Amazon package not too long ago because of the convenience of Amazon and how quick stuff comes. Sometimes, like, man, I need this. I don't. I can't go get it uh, immediately, but I can get it tomorrow if you know. If I go to Amazon, that convenience is compromising privacy. I mean, and and, and we all have a, a a role in that to some extent. The question here is. It's not necessarily a monopoly that we're seeing here, but I think everybody can admit that one or two companies having this much power is just not good. Uh, One thing that uh, G.K. Chesterton always talks about is you never want government to be too strong and you never want private business to be too strong. In some ways, those two should balance each other out with the with the people really having the control. But when you have an organization like this who is somewhat woke, they'll say the right stuff. They'll probably fund some social justice stuff. But if you look how they deal with their employees and just the way they're going, you know, what they're buying and, and, and how they're going about this, it really is concerning, if not scary, to say, wait, where is this going and how do we tamp down on it? How do we get this in check?
3: It's really interesting, especially because these corporations, you know, like you said, like they are, they they're just like you know, sort of culturally liberal enough to keep cultural, uh, you know, liberals and progressive uh, happy. But then they are corporations. You know, a lot of them are sort of like anti union, and um, you know, they have all these you know, big time investors, and so they it, it scrambles that framework. And it keeps everybody at bay. And if we don't have that paradigm shift, as you said, uh, I don't know how you ever like check this, which is, which is what it really needs. Like it's too much sort of power and reach into lives of people, um, to, to go unquestioned and unchecked. Like certainly there should be like somebody asking questions, um, and at least having some accountability because not only do, do we know that Amazon has, uh, you know, it's hands in all these different spaces of our lives. We don't really have a good idea about exactly how they are sort of synthesizing uh, and employing all of that data that they're gathering on everybody.
2: Uh, And that's not even even talking about lobbying dollars. And so that's obviously another big part of having any legislation. Do we have people in office with the integrity Not to be worried about the money that somebody's putting out for lobbying, but actually to do the right thing, even when somebody has this much. I mean, look at the numbers of how much they're buying these companies for. You know, they can put a lot of money into uh, into lobbying, which who in the world? Why in the world would they allow or support this kind of privacy act that would actually hurt some of the things that they're trying to do, which I don't even know if many of our lawmakers are. Are informed about what they are exactly, exactly what exactly they're trying to do. So it presents us with a huge problem. I'll let you take us out, though, Chris.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it does present us with uh, a major problem. And, you know, scripture in, encourages us to be wise as serpents, um, innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. And I, I think uh, for those who are discerning, um, this is one of those issues that we should be asking questions about should be urging our um, our congressional representatives uh, to, to begin to look into and, um, you know, hopefully there can be some traction on this because it's, it's something that's serious, but it it will take folks who can think about it and speak about it outside of the uh, sort of bifurcated political framework that we usually are engaged with.
2: Yeah. Maybe we can think about how our consumerism And our longing for convenience is putting us in a bad, bad situation. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So, if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, "Compassion and Conviction: The End Campaigns Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement." And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It is Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Uh, Republican National Committee Chairwoman uh, Ronna McDaniel said this absolute power corrupts absolutely. She's talking about the FBI. Countless times we have uh, examples of Democrats flouting the law and abusing power with no recourse. Democrats continually weaponize the bureaucracy against Republicans. This raid is outrageous. She's talking about the raid of Uh, president trump's home uh, by the fbi and a lot of republicans have kind of jumped on board of this uh, uh, jumped on board of this really attack on the fbi now i don't know about you chris but i find this to be somewhat ironic because you even heard people talking about defunding the fbi right but now you have the republican national committee chairwoman with these criticisms about the fbi and it really comes with the fact that they do whatever Trump wants them to do that, you know, she probably wouldn't be in that position if she wasn't going to say something like this. But to me, the irony is, if you are supportive of law enforcement, right, if you are supportive of uh, of of institutions that are trying to make sure that we have, quote unquote, law in order, you can't just be supportive when you're in power. You can't just be supportive. When they're coming down on people that you don't know or people that uh, don't run your party and then switch up, switch it up when they come down on somebody that you like and that you think should be running this country. So I think there is a problem there. Uh, Hopefully, you know, no, no agency is being used, you know, especially not the FBI in this way, which. We can talk about the long history of the FBI and how it's certainly been used in ways that it shouldn't be used. And the African-American community can tell you all about that. But it's interesting that people that would ignore that conversation would bring that up now that someone on their side, quote unquote, is being uh, dealt with by law enforcement.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's very interesting that there are a lot more people um, who are are wanting to have the conversation about uh, the FBI uh, and the other sort of federal law enforcement agencies. I think that um, it's a long overdue conversation and it's very nice to have more people um, engaging in that conversation. It is, you know, um, it is interesting to note that these folks are coming around to this post, you know, uh, the raid at Mar-a-Lago, But I think that that they are right. Uh, It is. uh, It's certainly ironic that people are asking these questions. I don't know why they didn't ask them before, because, you know, as you said, we could look at the long history, especially in the FBI. uh, And again, it would it would suggest to us that this is one of those places where there should be questions asked. uh, There should be accountability. I am I am not saying that I don't, you know, you know, that I have it out for the FBI. I don't, you know, we need uh, law enforcement. We need investigation uh, up and down, uh, but we need those investigatory powers to be uh, uh, checked by, uh, you know, the, the legislature uh, and the people. And so it's great to have people uh, coming into that conversation. I hope that uh, once the moment has moved beyond Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago that these individuals will maintain that desire uh, to look into the affairs of especially federal law enforcement, not just, you know, are they treating uh, former president Donald Trump wrong? Because that is an important question. I agree with them that it is an important question to make sure that this thing was not politically motivated. Uh, But let's also look at how they have treated, um, you know, United States citizens in terms of, uh, you know, domestic terror, how they have treated, uh, you know, um, young Islamic men over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, let's look into uh, an investigation into, you know, black communities, black leaders, you know, all, all down the road. Like, let's, let's look into a lot, like, let's look into everything. And I hope that people can maintain that zeal and that we'll actually see, like, Congressional commissions and stuff, not just looking into Donald Trump, yes, looking into that because it's really important. No citizen of the United States should be targeted. I'm by law enforcement, but let's open it up, you know, make sure that we take the full the full
2: perspective, yeah, that's right. I mean, no organization is above scrutiny or accountability, uh especially a public entity that you know works off of taxpayer dollars and is here to protect the public. Nobody's above that. I think what we're bringing up is a sort of lack of credibility. So when people come to us and say, well, why do you, why do you always do this criticism and, and you add both sides into the criticism? Well, the part of the reason is because we're trying to be truthful and we're trying to have credibility. Now, if we were to go outside of the truth and, and, and just force it, right, then there would be a problem with that. But if we see something wrong with both sides and we make a critique, It's because there's a a level of credibility that comes with that, and it's something that Christians should all be doing. When you only address one side, when you only critique one side, and nobody at some point, folks stop listening to you because it seems like partiality. In fact, we may need to do something on the partiality of not critiquing both sides. Now, keep this in mind, and I don't think people understand this rhetorical device that's kind of being used. But what, and it kind of comes out the culture war, in my in my opinion. But the idea that if you're if you're critiquing two things, you're saying that they're equal is false. I can critique two things and not be saying they're equal. And so every time I go on social media, you see somebody saying, how could you dare talk about the other? You got to have an honest critique. Because you got to maintain the credibility to speak on things and you got to call it how you see it. And I don't think people really understand the need to be honest in your critique, even if you think somebody's worse. Because we're broke, the humanity is broken because broken humanity is running the FBI. That's why they're not above scrutiny. But at the same time, if you don't feel the same way about them when they're going after progressives as you feel when they're going after conservatives, then don't be surprised when nobody's listening to you. Or don't be surprised when you sound like a hypocrite. Chris, you can take us out, man. No,
3: that's real. I, I, I will say that, you know, uh, nothing in, in, so, in what I'm saying today and, and nothing in, in what I think about accountability for the FBI would uh, support the kind of thing uh, that we saw in Ohio and that people are suggesting a little bit uh, in social media, uh, which which is actually physically attacking uh law enforcement officials right the the guy went uh, to the uh, FBI uh, offices tried to breach the the office with a nail gun and uh, and a rifle That is not how you hold the FBI accountable um, you you hold the the FBI accountable accountable through uh, you know the the Congress. Uh, and, and the other uh, means of government that we have. And so this is this is not an appeal to violence. In fact, uh, this is a, an appeal to nonviolence. Uh, and we should not. No one should attack uh, law enforcement officials in the name of holding them accountable. That's not how you get that done. Um you know, but we do need to uh, have this accountability. Uh, we can't just have it when it's, when it's folks we like. Uh, we need to have it on both sides. And, and, I, and I will say just as a final piece, like that is why I, I, I said it earlier a little bit in jest. Um, but it is I'm, I'm really serious about the fact that like there needs to be accountability even on this uh, Mar-a-Lago um, raid. Right. I said it, I think, on the previous uh, podcast, once we know what was retrieved and, and all of the details, some of it has come out, but once we know the seriousness of what uh was gained through that raid, uh, we'll be able to to judge if it was something that 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 should have been done. Because again, uh this is we cannot uh downplay the fact that the FBI raiding yeah the residence of a former president of the United States uh, is a huge deal. That, that's a huge, huge deal. Um, and if it, if it comes to nothing, it is going to leave um, a bad taste in my mouth uh, in terms of how, you know, we use these uh, federal law enforcement agencies. So uh, accountability is real. It needs to be there in, in this Mar-a-Lago situation and in all uh, other situations.
2: Yeah. again, we're talking about committee hearings and investigations, not vigilante justice or whatever somebody else might bring uh, to the conversation. That is not uh, what we're trying to get at. Well, that's another episode from the Church Politics podcast. Again, if you support us, if you like what we're doing, you should go to iTunes. You should go to Spotify and rate rate the uh, podcast. Leave a note. Share it with your friends. And you can also support us directly at uh, patreon.com slash church politics we need y'all to become a part of this movement if we're going to have more content if we're going to do this more often we need your support so continue to support us we appreciate y'all as usual and camp there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear there's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion of jesus christ until next time and count oh lord i said kingdom